0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jenny Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Jeffrey Hall from Kanda University in Japan. His recent book, Japan's Nationalist Rights in the Internet Age, Online Media and Grassroots Conservative Activism was published through Routledge as a part of the Routledge Contemporary Japan series. In this book, Jeffrey investigates the role of online activism in some of Japan's current historical and territorial disputes, as well as the various means that these activists took to organize their activities. So welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you ja. it's 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 really great to be on this podcast. i I love listening to it. so finally appear on it is is very exciting for me.
0: Thank you, thank you for supporting us. Um so I've only come to learn about Japan's nationalist activism online through the vicious attacks on japanologists recently well re, well, in about a year from about a year ago. And the degree to which these nationalist activists are willing to, goal to devote into online participation. It was eye-opening for me. Why did you pick such a topic as your research focus, and how long have you been working on it? Uh,
1: yes, that's it's a really um, good question. Um, I've uh, been aware of this issue uh, for quite a long time. When I first moved to Japan in, in 2005, after finishing uh, my undergraduate studies at uh, George Washington University. Uh, I'd majored in history and Japanese, so uh, at that time, 2005, was the Koizumi years where uh, the textbook issue and historical issues, uh, the disputes between Japan and China and Korea were heating up back then as well. Uh, I didn't really expect that it would still be bad, even worse uh, 15 years later, uh, 16 years later, Uh, but uh, it was an issue that I was very much interested in at the time. Uh, And uh, around that time as well, in in 2005, YouTube was started, and uh, like many people, I I loved watching YouTube, I loved looking on YouTube for issues that I'm interested in, uh, for uh, English language videos about American or European uh, political topics. It's very easy to find many perspectives on YouTube, even back then, Uh, but when I searched in Japanese about these historical issues, uh, the search results were dominated by nationalist, uh, right-leaning perspectives, uh, and the most popular political channels on YouTube back then, and even uh, to, until today, uh, were representing the right and nationalist views. And uh, so when I eventually decided to enter Waseda University for my graduate studies in 2008, Uh, I wanted to research about these groups because when I tried to find English language books, English language articles, uh, there just wasn't very much out there. Even among Japanese books, there wasn't that many that truly focused on this kind of Internet activism and these particular uh, social actors that I I looked at. Uh, So it seemed like uh, an important topic in 2008 and uh, later Uh, When I went into the PhD program, uh, I continued the research on this topic, Uh, and so this book is really drawn from research uh, between my starting graduate school in 2008 and uh, 2020 when I finished writing the book. I had to update a lot of things because some things were changing since the time of my PhD research, but this has been a continual phenomenon that uh, doesn't seem to be going away. Uh, And it seems like something pretty important to study because it is impacting uh, not just uh, Japanese domestic politics, but also, as you said, the lives of uh, professors around the world who could become a target of uh, uh, the followers of the Japanese nationalist right.
0: So this might be a bit of a broad question, but could you give us a brief introduction to nationalist activities Like, uh, for example, what are some of the common measures they take? And um, you mentioned that uh, online activism had a lot to do with the rise of YouTube. But since when did it become a very important part of their um, activities?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, the the nationalist right in Japan, uh, it depends on how you define right wing and so on. Uh, but you can go back uh, to the post-World War II extreme right groups, the ones that people tend to think of driving around in their sound trucks, wearing their you know, military-style uniforms, looking very scary. Uh, and uh, that is what a lot of people think is uh, the activities of Japan's uh, right wing. But uh, for me, I focus more on uh, citizen groups that do not use those kind of tactics. Uh, They try very hard to present themselves as normal people. Uh, They want to have demonstrations that they hold where uh, they carry only uh, the Japanese national flag and they have banners that don't contain overt hate speech and uh, racial slurs and that kind of thing. So uh, this is uh, the kind of group that I, I studied and they use the internet very much to organize their activities and uh, YouTube is important, but uh, ever since uh, the internet started to become spreading around in Japanese society, uh, people on both the right and the left have used it to organize initially before broadband internet, there would be emailing lists that they could use. Uh, And during the the textbook uh, revisionist movement in the early 2000s and they were doing that, uh, but uh, around this time, it's interesting to note that the rise of the internet was also coincidentally at the, the time when in 1995, uh, Japan issued its apologies, these apology statements regarding uh, the war and comfort women. And this is the time when these backlash groups emerged. They don't like Japan's apology diplomacy. So you have, uh, I already mentioned the the textbook reformers, but also there's the Uh, the organization Nippon Kaigi, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of. You have lawmakers like Abe Shinzo uh, using the issue to help uh, get a base of support. And so uh, just as this is happening, uh, the internet is becoming more accessible to everybody in Japan. Broadband internet is spreading so that now it's not just text. It's not just going on e-channel and posting a text message. Now you can get a relatively high quality video that's like a news program presenting you with uh, right-wing talking points about historical issues, bringing on guests who uh, seem credible, who introduce uh, these issues that until the the internet would have been spread by uh, some magazines that you, you would have to go to a physical bookstore to buy. and Uh, Now they can reach a much wider audience because of these sites like YouTube, use YouTube to call people out to a demonstration, call people out to contact or put pressure on uh, companies or uh, organizations, or uh, raising money through YouTube. Uh, And that's allowed them to do so much more than uh, before the internet existed.
0: Wow. And now we can add Twitter onto the plate. Um, There's so many crazy things that they're doing on the internet um so one of the major focuses of your book is a this channel sakura which is a youtube channel you went through all the trouble to keep up with their videos you created your own youtube channel um, you observed many of their activities and in your words you lurked to gather your data so how was that experience like and how did you like it
1: well, uh, I, I, I can't really say that I, I enjoyed it a lot, but uh, of course this is something that is interesting to me. I wouldn't be researching something if I didn't find it interesting. Uh, but uh, to look at this channel, this is a YouTube channel called uh, Nihon Bunka Channel Sakura, and it's basically Japanese culture channel Sakura, but they are primarily creating since uh, 2004, Uh, videos related to these historical issues, to right-leaning political causes. Uh, And so in order to research their YouTube channel, uh, I created a separate YouTube account, not really a YouTube channel so much, I didn't upload any videos, but it is a separate YouTube username. Uh, And this is necessary because uh, the algorithm of YouTube uh, will recommend similar videos if I were to use my main, uh, normal Google account to to view this, it would mean that my normal entertainment would be clogged with you know all kinds of recommendations about uh, right wing issues. So uh, it, it it was in a way to quarantine this and keep it like the experience of someone who would be going to YouTube to watch this kind of historical video uh, and then. Through these, they might recommend other videos, uh, videos that were not created by their channel. Uh, some of these uh, allowed me to uh, discover videos that participants in their offline protests had filmed themselves so that I can get another perspective of how it was at their marches. Uh, and uh, for a typical viewer, you know, it would be like, Existing in an ideological echo chamber and uh, a lot of researchers have noted how sites like Twitter Facebook and YouTube uh, will recommend things that the person already agrees with and help to reinforce uh, uh, Ideologies and make them more extreme and this is probably the case of what's been happening uh, a lot in Japan Uh, but um, I'm always asked uh, at uh, conferences like how can you stand watching this for so many hours and you know isn't it you know so bad Uh, but after a while you just kind of get used to uh, these kind of denialist messages uh, especially because it's so repetitive Uh, a lot of the same arguments are presented again and again and again uh, but eventually uh, to make uh, the research more focused I chose three specific activist campaigns that they engaged in uh, that had different features and uh, different outcomes. Uh, And I think I I can give a better picture of how these kinds of organizations function and how they use the internet by looking at uh, a campaign where they put pressure on media, a campaign where they put pressure on a local government to change a historical marker, uh, and a campaign where Uh, They engage in landing on the disputed Senkaku Islands to put pressure on both the Japanese government and provoke responses from China.
0: Yeah, and we will talk about um, these campaigns in detail in a little bit. But for this uh, channel, Sakura, do we know who are behind them Um, Your book also mentions that they created a sort of a political organization called Ganbare Nippon. Can you tell us more about this group and uh, how they are related, how they operate?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, uh, this group uh, is, uh, in a sense, a combination of various people uh, within uh, the universe of Japan's nationalist right, Uh, the principal founders Uh, a man named Mizushima Satoru and a woman, uh, Matsura Yoshiko, uh, they were of the generation that were students in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, while campuses back then uh, were a hotbed of kind of left-wing protests, a lot of extreme left-wing activities in Tokyo especially, uh, they were a part of this conservative youth that, really hated how their campuses were a scene of chaos. And uh, so from their time as young students, they were already gravitating towards uh, the conservative right. Uh, Matsuura Yoshiko was actually uh, connected to Mishima Yukio's uh, student militia that helped to uh, lead a failed coup d'etat in the 1970s. So. Uh, she was involved with that. Uh, she left the organization before the coup d'etat attempt, but still they were all tied into this uh, process of post-war uh, right-wing activism. Uh, and they also teamed up with a man um, named Tagata Takio, who was a former Japanese fighter pilot during World War II who acted as a sort of, uh, I guess you could say, symbolic head of their organization in its early years because, He, as an established uh, participant in veterans organizations and an advocate for uh, the kamikaze pilots, uh, had a lot of name recognition among uh, the right and among veterans groups. So in the early 2000s, they came together, uh, raised the funds necessary uh, through their various connections uh, to set up their own television channel that would present uh, a uh, patriotic in their view view of the news and history and they initially in 2004 set themselves up as a satellite TV channel uh, where you would have to pay a subscription fee something like 800 yen a month uh, but eventually they uh, realized that that the internet was a better means of reaching more people and also raising more money. Uh, and so uh, they became primarily an internet broadcaster and had much bigger audiences. Uh, then uh, come 2009, uh, you have uh, the conservative uh, liberal democratic party being knocked out of office and the democratic party of Japan took power in, in, in the government. Uh, and so these activists, uh, they decided that Uh, They didn't just need a a, a broadcasting channel that promoted other people's protest activities. They needed their own protest organization. So they set up Gambare Nippon in 2009 as this grassroots organization uh, that would act as a bridge between uh, their media and activists and also uh, connect to conservative politicians. So at the beginning of uh, their organization. They had a big rally, and they were attended uh, by quite a lot of uh, politicians, such as Abe Shinzo, who was a former prime minister at that time. He would later become prime minister again. Uh, You had people like uh, Takaichi Sanai, who is now influential in in the LDP, Uh, and uh, you have politicians like Inara Tomomi, who is well known for her nationalist views within the LDP, but significantly, her father was a leader of Gambari Nippon's Kyoto branch. He was a long-time nationalist activist. So uh, they had these connections here, and then uh, they brought in as their leader uh, the former uh, Japan Air Self-Defense Forces General uh, Tamogami, who had been uh, fired because of an essay he wrote that expressed uh, very uh, right-wing viewpoints about history, uh, so he would be the head of this new political organization which would carry out uh, large demonstrations, especially following uh, the Senkaku Islands uh, controversies a few years later.
0: Wow, that was that's a lot of information. I hope it doesn't give Fox News any ideas about setting their own organizations. <laughs> But we um, mentioned earlier that you investigated in DEAL these three campaigns of Channel Sakula that targeted at different groups of people and took different strategies. And um, of course, these campaigns were about some of the most controversial issues in regards to Japan's foreign relations and historical past. So one of them was about Comfort Women, which, as you may know, is a huge... Um, there's a huge... Um, Twitter war about it right now so in this campaign the opponents of channel secular were academics and progressive citizens groups um very much like the situation today how did they achieve their goal in a uh, channel Sakula and their supporters how did they achieve their goal in this fight against um the, the government and the citizen organizations?
1: Well, I guess first I'll, I'll discuss the, the, a little bit of the detail of this, and then I'll talk about a little bit how it sort of relates to what's happening now on Twitter. Uh, well, in, in 2011, uh, the Okinawa prefectural government uh, decided to start acting on a plan that had been in the works for a long time, which was uh, they wanted Uh, to explore opening up uh, these tunnels that existed under uh, the Shuri Castle area, tunnels that had been used by uh, the Japanese Imperial Army uh, during the Battle of Okinawa in 1945. Uh, The the area was under uh, a lot of disrepair, so the tunnel itself could not yet be opened, but they did want to put up a signboard explaining uh, the tunnels in 2011. And so Uh, To decide what text would be on the board, they called together a committee of historical experts, which were mainly university professors, and these university professors, uh, they had a left-leaning progressive view of history, so uh, they uh, wanted uh, to note that in this, the 32nd Imperial Army's headquarters bunker complex, uh, there had been uh, comfort women there and also that there had been massacres of uh, Japanese civilians by the Japanese military or massacres of Okinawan civilians so uh, these are two very uh, controversial issues for Japan's nationalist right they they absolutely do not want this kind of thing to be on a historical signboard that tourists and school children will look at uh, so, uh, Channel Sakura's leader, uh, Mr. Mizushima, uh, and its contrib- contributors, they they were like, we have to stop the, the leftist academics who are anti-Japan from distorting history. And so uh, they went about this in two ways. One was by finding a elderly Japanese woman who had worked as a nurse for the, the Japanese military in that specific bunker complex, and interview her uh, and uh, have her present counter evidence in which she vehemently denied that there were any comfort women there or even massacres. Uh, and uh, they put these videos up on YouTube and then at the end of the video, they'd said as their second act, please call up the Okinawa prefectural government at this number or this email or this fax and tell them uh, you want them to not put up this signboard with this text. And Uh, The the amount of people who responded was not huge. It was actually only 82 people complained. Uh, But this was enough for the Okinawa government to decide to remove these offending words from the final draft uh, and very quickly uh, put up the signboard before uh, these professors could organize a proper response to it. So professors, they convened meetings, but the meetings were after this had been already printed and put up, uh, and they did find their own uh, counter witnesses, uh, but it was too late. Uh, the The signboard was already up, and it seems even after a change in government in Okinawa from a more conservative governor to a more liberal governor, there hasn't really been any move to take down a signboard and put up a new one. Uh, you could say that this was a result of the successful activism of Channel Sakura, but also uh, maybe the government under a conservative governor at that time wasn't really in wanting to put up this kind of draft anyway. Uh, it's hard to say what really pushed this over the edge, but at least Channel Sakura and its 82 complainers uh, gave them a reason to reject the professor's draft. Uh, now, what you have today is a situation where uh, there is, uh, There has been a professor at a distinguished American university who uh, wrote several articles that basically parrot typical uh, Japanese nationalist kind of revisionist views of history, including the comfort women issue. Uh, and so through Twitter, uh, a group of international academics in a very public manner organized a counter response. They put together uh, articles that very clearly showed uh, that this other professor uh, had not done very good research at all, uh, and pretty much discredited his articles in the, in the minds of uh, pretty much all credible scholars of Japan. Uh, but uh, while Twitter can be used for organizing this kind of thing, it can also, and has been for years, A hotbed of japan's right wing and so uh, groups of japanese uh, right-wing twitter users the kind of people who probably many of them have watched channel sakura videos uh, they have uh, organized their own response to basically bombard uh, these professors and researchers uh, with angry messages and trying to say that they they are not able to speak the japanese language or they can't even do research all kinds of you know insults uh, getting spread on a daily basis and uh, this is something that on twitter according to twitter's terms of service is pretty much tolerated Uh, and uh, this goes into uh, an issue that i talk about near the end of the book which is that These groups like Channel Sakra they exist on YouTube and they survive on YouTube because of YouTube's uh, community guidelines allowing them to do so. Uh, So uh, there were some changes later in my research where YouTube updated its community guidelines to not allow uh, the publishing of videos that deny well-documented historical events, violent historical events And this did have an impact that made them remove thousands of their old videos, probably because they were afraid that uh, they might get flagged and banned from YouTube. Uh, But this kind of change in guidelines, uh, which had an impact on Japanese YouTubers, was not because of social pressure in Japan about these issues. It was because American domestic political issues were going on where There were people denying Sandy Hook, uh, the school shooting, and they were denying the Holocaust on YouTube and the American media paid attention to this. And then YouTube acted and similarly, there have been other social media companies acting to try to cut down on things like uh, vaccine denial and COVID conspiracies and election conspiracies. And all of these things are an American issue, but they impact users in Japan and in the case of Twitter, unless Twitter actually acts to change its community rules or its guidelines, uh, it will basically continue to be a platform where uh, Japanese right-wing Internet users can uh, just continually organize campaigns against uh, professors that they see as, uh, quote-unquote, anti-Japanese. Uh, so. Uh, this is one of these problems with the internet today is that uh, a lot of people have expectations of that this kind of behavior will be stopped by Twitter or by YouTube, uh, but the the companies there, in some ways, they might even benefit from having so many users, and they don't want to uh, cut down on the the freedom of these users to basically uh, go after people they disagree with. Uh, so it's, it's a really... Uh, uh, difficult issue and one that, uh, unless these companies act, probably will not be solved.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up this issue. I mean, from from the suicide of Kimulahana to all these daily harassment on um, academics, these internet companies just don't seem to be taking any actions to actually protect the right of legitimate users, although I guess they could also argue that they cannot tell who's legitimate. Um, but yeah, it's quite disturbing. Um, so the third campaign that you looked at um, in your book was about the island. I actually remember reading about the fishing boat in Chinese news, who of course didn't mention the boat was um were sent by Gambale Nippon. So how are the strategies um, of Sakura Chan- uh, Channel Sakura and Gambale Nippon, how do they differ from the other two campaigns this time?
1: Well, in the case of this one where they actually landed on the Sankaku Islands uh, with their own boat, uh, it's it's very interesting uh, how, how much they could achieve with this. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the Chinese media didn't mention them by name, but it's kind of funny, uh, even if you read the Japanese media, the English media, the the, the media in various languages, uh, if they report on something that Kanbara Nippon and Channel Sakura do, probably 90% of the time, they don't even mention the name of them and they'll just say Japanese nationalists or Japanese right-wingers. And uh, this is another thing that kind of frustrated me early on in my research is that if I saw an article about something, it didn't really give any relevant details to me. And perhaps part of this is that journalists don't want to give these people extra fame and recognition. uh, But in the end, it it kind of has this weird uh, effect of kind of confirming their own belief uh, that the media is out to get them and the media is actually anti Japanese. Uh, But in this case, uh, through their own independent online media which they believe is of course the the true uh, news uh they were organized a campaign to uh, buy their own fishing boat and so they uh, set up a bank account uh, this was before things like you know patreon or gofundme or that they decided that you know please transfer money to this bank account and and they raised uh, within a few months uh, the necessary thousands of dollars, or thousands of yen, uh, millions of yen, uh, to buy a fishing boat uh, in Okinawa, uh, which they then used uh, to carry out uh, numerous uh, fishing expo- expeditions to uh, the disputed Senkaku Islands. Uh, so they would go there in their fishing boat, catch some fish, uh, film it, of course, for YouTube, so it would have lots of a cool video to show later. And uh, this is something that uh, few other groups could even come close to achieving. Uh, so this was very significant for them, especially because uh, going to the islands would almost always provoke China into sending its own patrol boats to confront them. And the Japanese Coast Guard would have to send its own boats to protect them. And you would have these videos of uh, the boats uh, openly confronting each other. They don't use weapons, uh, thankfully. They just kind of go around each other saying, get out of our territory. No, you get out of our territory, and this kind of thing over and over. And Channel Sakura and its activists could get a bullhorn on their boat and say, get out of our territory, you Chinese invaders. And And so it made for very dramatic and interesting uh, video content beyond just sitting in a office in Shibuya and talking in front of a a desk. Uh, So this for them was a really uh, significant achievement, one that uh, provoked international responses. And then later, uh, they actually went and landed on the islands, having brought extra boats that were rented with them so that the international media could be on some of these boats too and take video and photos of them on the islands. And uh, as a result, uh, it made a, a quite a lot of anger in China, obviously. Uh, and um, the Japanese government, even though it, Abe Shinzo had become prime minister, uh, cracked down on uh, Channel Sakura and Ganbarepon and and aggressively use the Japanese Coast Guard to deny them access to the area around the islands because uh, that would be something that would cause another international incident. Uh, And in recent years, uh, the best they've been able to do is a a few fishing missions near the islands. Uh, But a lot of the time, the Coast Guard will uh, very aggressively try to stop them from getting on boats. Uh, only allow local Okinawan fishermen to be using the boat and not activists from Tokyo. Uh, So uh, they have uh, been kind of stopped a bit from doing what they were before, but they do uh, do something quite interesting, which is uh, they take the fish they catch and then they bring it to Tokyo. And in several cases, they have set up press conferences at the uh, National Diet Building to serve sushi that is made from these fish to conservative lawmakers. So you'll have somebody like Inara Tomomi there uh, eating this senkaku sushi. And I I guess in a way this is like asserting sovereignty over the territory by eating the food from there. Uh, And even uh, Abe's brother uh, Mr. Kishi, uh, before he had a cabinet position, he also attended some of these sushi uh, press conferences. So uh, Abe, though, never came, uh, much to the disappointment. Uh, he wasn't, uh, he kind of backed off a little bit in engaging with them after he became prime minister, but they still thought that he was probably on their side. Uh, but still, uh, you have this very interesting example of them uh, using uh, a, basically a crowdfunded boat uh, to uh, agitate a, a major territorial dispute, a major territorial dispute that has serious. Uh, Implications and a flare up in the Senkaku Islands is one of the most scary international situations to imagine, Uh, but these uh, private activists uh, have inserted themselves into this issue and uh, could cause a major problem if if not stopped. So it's it's probably their most significant and important uh, act as uh, nationalist activists is to be doing this. Boat activism near the Senkaku Islands.
0: Yeah, I guess that's definitely not something to be taken lightly, but in a way, I also find it kind of pathetic um, <laughs> how they would carry out these activities. But you mentioned that um, in, in getting these boats, they kind of crowdfunded. How do they operate financially? How do they keep the group up and how do they um, maintain their supporters?
1: Well, the, that is a very interesting question because they are distributing basically mo- all of their programs for free on YouTube, uh, yet they are able to keep operating. And uh, this was a, a risk that they took early on when their satellite TV channel started to uh, tank. Uh, they, there were not enough people paying 880 yen a month for a satellite TV channel in their early years. So they actually started cutting down on the number of days that they broadcast. Eventually though, they they found that through the internet from 2008, they started asking for people to make voluntary monthly donations. They had something called the 2000 member committee that they set up. Whether or not it actually ever reached 2000 is kind of not hard to say, but uh, they they wanted 2,000 people to contribute roughly the equivalent of $100 a month, uh, so 10,000 yen a month. Uh, and if they did get this, it, it seems reasonable that it could cover the costs of a low-budget uh, television studio uh, where many of the contributors are not paid. Uh, there's also are lower levels of membership where uh, you can make uh, 2,000 yen or $20 a month uh, donations and. Uh, You'll get uh, some merch from them, like DVDs once a year, or uh, maybe an autograph from one of their contributors, the opportunity to attend an in-person party uh, where they are there, and you can say hello to them. Uh, So there's all kinds of things that they're doing to try to build a community uh, where people who financially support them are recognized. Another aspect of this community is it's they, they might have people send in gifts to them, like food, local food from their area of Japan. Sort of like uh, if you're in Japan and somebody travels to another prefecture, they come to their office and they have some fruit or some crackers from uh, some other prefecture as omiage omiyage. Well, viewers send in to them the omiyage of their hometowns, and then they might actually eat it on air and say, well, thank you. Mr. Tanaka for sending this to us. We appreciate your support. And, and so that they're, they're very much trying to build a connection between themselves and their viewers and recognizing the financial contributions of viewers. Uh, nowadays, it's very common to have YouTubers have things like Patreon, and then they'll say, I just want to stop the video here and show a list of the people who contribute. Well, Channel Sakura was doing that even before that became a, a basically a norm on YouTube. Uh, they don't use Patreon, they use direct uh, bank transfers, but uh, they uh, recognize on-air people who contribute money to them, and they'll have now occasionally uh, commercials as well for books or, or for the names of businesses that can be purchased. Initially, they didn't have actual commercials, but they very much try to tell people uh, that they are not beholden to big corporations or uh, big money. Uh, and they think that the mainstream media is. And they also think that their rival uh, right-wing kind of conservative uh, internet broadcaster, DHC Television, which is directly under the DHC Corporation and its, uh, its right-leaning owner, uh, is basically a corporate news outlet. They are a grassroots news outlet funded by their own viewers. Whether or not that's true is hard to really confirm because uh, they don't make their exact financials uh, public. But given the low-budget nature of their programs, I think it it is plausible.
0: You mentioned in the book that they had a major financial scandal in 2014 that greatly threatened their unity within the group. So what are some of the elements that are stopping them from further growing? And how do you see its possible parallel with America's far right activism?
1: Sure. So you have uh, in 2014, uh, Gambare Nippon and Channel Sakura, they decide, uh, let's try to actually elect some of our people to political office. And uh, in the, the 2014 Tokyo gubernatorial uh, race, uh, Tamogami Toshio, the former general of the self-defense forces who had been head of Gambari Nippon. uh, He stepped down as leader of Gambari Nippon so that he could run as a candidate in the governor's race. And also Mizushima stepped down as head of Channel Sakura temporarily to be one of his campaign managers. And the election got a lot of attention to Tamogami. He didn't win, though, but he came in fourth place with the 610,000 votes which is about 12 percent of the vote and some polls estimated that maybe 25 percent of people in their 20s which is a very small uh, demographic in Japan's elections because it's mostly older people voting but still 25 uh, percent of people in their 20s may have voted for Tamogami. so he had this kind of youth nationalist vote uh, but he lost and in 2015 it came to light that uh, Tamogami was in legal trouble. Uh, Supporters had raised about 130 million yen for his campaign. And a lot of this fundraising had been done at the encouragement of Channel Sakura programs. Uh, The viewers were contributing to somebody who had headed one of their organizations for a long time. But of this 130 million yen, uh, 50 million yen had just disappeared. It was unaccounted for. Where'd the money go? Uh, and that's close to about a half a million dollars uh, in U.S. dollars. So it's a lot of money that, to just disappear from a campaign, especially considering that it was you know, more than a third of the money raised. Uh, Tamogami denied direct knowledge of the missing money. Uh, but what's interesting is that uh, Mizushima Satoru, the founder of Channel Sakura, uh, thought that Tamogami was involved and actually helped testify against Tamogami in the trial and in the media. He gave statements against Tamogami. So in May 2017, the Tokyo District Court found Tamogami uh, guilty. Uh, They said that he had illegally distributed leftover funds to several senior campaign staffers, which is uh, basically considered a form of illegal bribery under Japanese law. And he was not actually sent to jail. He was given a suspended sentence so basically put on parole for about 22 months Uh, and uh, this was uh, a big scandal for channel sakura because one of the people who they had presented as a trusted leader had in in the view of mizushima betrayed them and uh, this led uh, to a splintering of their viewership because some people believed Tamogami's denials that he had been involved. Some people believed Mizushima in insisting that Tamogami had uh, basically cheated them. And uh, then you have rival organizations setting up their own uh, YouTube channels, the biggest of these being DHC Television, connected to the cosmetic company. And DHC Television gave Tamogami a platform and treated him with great respect. And uh, also, poached a lot of Channel Sakura's longtime contributors. Uh, probably there was better money and more exposure working for the big company with its higher production values. Uh, but this led to this splintering, where uh, on the one hand, you have Channel Sakura claiming to be the grassroots voice of the conservative right, and then you have DHC, a well funded uh, right wing news channel uh, that has famous celebrities come on their programs that has the production values that look just like a normal broadcast variety show. Uh, So they get many more views than Channel Sakura does now, despite there being more new. Uh, But while this is splintering, what's interesting is the number of subscribers and the number of viewers for Channel Sakura hasn't really dropped. It's continued to grow uh, and DHC television seems to be getting a lot of viewers as well, and also to their uh, daily live streamed news programs. Uh, So you can say that there's a lot of maybe personal uh, animosity between certain leaders in Japan's nationalist right. uh, But the following that they have uh, continues to gradually grow. But I should note that I'm not talking about the right wing taking over Japan or anything like that. This is still basically under a million viewers in a country of over 100 million people. So uh, this is not the most popular media in Japan. It is a a small group of people who are nonetheless significant in some of the things that they do. Uh, And uh, there's a lot of parallels in many different ways to American far-right activism or even European far-right activism, especially in the use of uh, these ideas of The the mainstream media and other countries being basically fake news. They didn't use the term fake news when I began researching them. They didn't use terms like deep state. uh, But they used terms that were basically the same thing. And later on, they started using the terms like deep state and and fake news to refer to uh, the Japanese news media or to international news media that doesn't share their views. Uh, And so uh, there is a lot of connection and these kind of conspiracy theories, I guess you can say, of uh, the, all these institutions are out to get them, the media, academia, even within their own government that is a conservative government, uh, there is this idea of something like a deep state where uh, certain bureaucrats are actually pro-China or certain members of the ruling party are pro-China or they're not nationalistic enough. Uh, and very recently, in the most recent election, they actually tried to run uh, a candidate in Wakayama Prefecture against uh, Nikai, who is one of the uh, long-serving uh, members of the, the LDP. Uh, he's a conservative, but he's viewed as a pro-China LDP member. So they wanted to unseat him. Uh, so they had one of their contributors run in this election. Uh She came in third place, Uh, the LDP candidate Nikai easily won, uh, and she was in third place behind the Communist Party. So uh, this wasn't really a successful effort, but they want to continue to try to get involved in uh, electoral politics, uh, but with much less success than, say, in America or Europe, where you have populist uh, right-wing candidates who uh, are almost uh, like on the lunatic fringe of uh, politics who who can run and win some elections. The, the candidates that have been winning smaller elections in the United States or in Europe are, are much more extreme than some of these people that are contributors to Channel soccer, But uh, in Japan, they haven't really had the electoral success that uh, overseas uh, right-wing groups have had. Another commonality is that as I talked about before, uh, the tightening of community guidelines on social media platforms like YouTube or Twitter or Facebook is a threat to uh, all kinds of international movements of that, that have extreme ideologies. And so, uh, whether they be the Japanese right, the American right, the European right, uh, they uh, see the possibility that they will be censored and deplatformed from youtube or twitter and it's something that they have to plan for in the future uh and maybe they'll have to develop their own independent hosting platforms Uh, that's what uh, infowars did in the united states they just decided to just broadcast their programs from their own website Uh, but this is something that costs a lot of money it may not have as many viewers so uh, they're they're very survivals at stake if social media platforms decide to crack down on them
0: now moving towards the end of this conversation, I have one last question for you. Um, now that we've taken a closer look at how these um, nationalists nationalist activism work and how they operate, how they gain their fundings, how they intervene with contemporary issues, um, how do you think and I apologize if this puts you in a bit of a difficult position, but how do you think we as academics on Japanese studies, whether on contemporary or um, early modern, pre-modern, whether on political science or other fields, how do you think we could cope with the, um, the, the chaos brought upon us by these nationalist activists
1: Uh, through their online activities? Yes, this is a a very difficult question. Um, On the one hand, it it is obvious that as academics, we should continue to publish truthful research, uh, teach classes that teach the the truth, uh, not uh, be afraid of publishing these things. Uh, But when it comes to actually engaging with uh, these kind of groups, uh, there is this problem, and I've had people contact me privately saying, you know, I have a brother or my uncle who's believing in this, and like, how do I stop him from believing it? And the I, the answer is, I have no idea how to stop because an academic from, in in their view, uh, the radical left wing, you know, anti-Japanese academia, uh, is not going to be trusted. So. What we say is automatically just not going to go. And uh, the, and our standards of what is credible evidence are not their standards of what is credible evidence. They have their own alternative, uh, this term alternative facts came into to vogue during the Trump years, but it's true. They have alternative facts and an alternative truth that we as academics, pretty much no, no matter what we say, we will not convince some of these people using our typical ways of arguing and of presenting evidence uh, to change their views. In fact, it might even make them uh, dig in and become more uh, certain of their views because they feel like uh, the academics, the the professors are attacking them. Uh, So this is such a difficult question, and I think there needs to be a lot more research conducted on how uh, you can de-radicalize people or how, how you can convince someone who is very deeply invested in an alternative truth uh, to believe in the truth that we as academics strive to present in our own research. I mean, we can do our best to, say, prevent uh, peer-reviewed journals from actually allowing uh, sketchy uh, research from being published, uh, but when it terms, comes to actually convincing these uh, people on the, on the nationalist right or on the far right to change their views, it is an incredibly difficult question that I, I wish I had a good answer for. And I, I wish I could give you a good answer for that. But obviously, as academics, we need to keep supporting people who are doing research that can get them attacked. Uh, and if you do have a, a stable position where you are not subject to losing your job because of right-wing pressure uh, by all means uh, you should try uh, to uh, engage in this issue in a more public manner but there's many other scholars who uh, they could lose their job if somebody if if a if if a pressure mob goes after them and calls them anti-japanese and so on it could cause trouble for their university and they might get denied tenure or something like that so there's a lot of uh, risks to think about, and but generally, though, the, the, the we need to keep writing and publishing research that shows that uh, this is well documented, and we're not just making things up. Uh, and people who are willing to actually weigh evidence and look at the facts and see things will believe uh, the the truth. But There's just a whole other part of society now that is actively against experts. They don't want to believe experts. They think experts are the enemy. Uh, Academics are the enemy. And so I'm not really sure how to bridge this gap between uh, these competing truths.
0: Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And I just want to take this opportunity to say that I really appreciate the effort of um, our fellow academics who are fighting against these, um, alternative truths, or I guess we can just call them lies sometimes, um, in the, in the, especially in the recent Comfort Women issue. But thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you. It was very fun to talk about this. I, I hope, uh, that, uh, I didn't, uh, sound too weird or anything. And I hope that, uh, listeners, uh, Uh, will find this interesting enough to check out my book. Uh, It's a very expensive book, so uh, I recommend that uh, if you're at a university to request for your library to buy it and not use your own money or maybe ask a professor who has a research grant to buy it if you're a student. Uh, But uh, I really hope uh, that more people start paying attention to this issue and I, I really want to welcome more people to the study of this issue because I think uh, like I said, I don't have all the answers, and I wish I did. And more people researching it will provide more answers in the future.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. So that was Dr. Jeffrey Hall and his new book, Japan's Nationalist Right in the Internet Age, Online Media and Grassroots Conservative Activism. This is Jeannie from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.